although the kinds of challenges and changes that our clients are working with might have the label of sustainability, for them, it's just being fit for the future. It's all just good business. Hello and welcome to Zebra Talk. My name is Matt Mayer and today I'm in conversation with Lindsay Hooper, the Executive Director of the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. CISL is part of Cambridge University and one of the leading providers of executive education relating to leadership through the lens of the sustainability challenges faced by organisations. We discuss the impact of the COVID pandemic on sustainability as a priority, what good leadership looks like at a time of extreme scrutiny for leaders, and ask what boards can be doing to support better outcomes for sustainability. Lindsay, welcome. Hi, good morning. Glad to be here. Really good to have you here. And uh, I was really looking forward to having a conversation with you because I wanted to talk about really the unique insight that you can bring through the work that you're doing with with individual leaders and, and corporates. I thought it'd be a really good place to, to kick off if perhaps you just told our listeners a little bit more about what the Institute does. Yes, absolutely. So we are an institute within the University of Cambridge. So we've recently celebrated our 30th anniversary, but we're quite unique and unusual uh, within the Cambridge context. So all of our work is with senior leaders, and that's predominant leaders within business, within multinational businesses, uh, financial institutions, but we also work with a number of government institutions. We work both with individuals and also with their organisations, and all of our work is supporting them to build the capability, the leadership capability, but also to develop solutions to enable them to contribute effectively towards achieving a sustainable economy. So for many of them, that's about being really effective in the long term, building thriving, sustainable organisations and contributing to to really the future that we want. So the Institute's based in Cambridge. I think uh, many of our listeners will think of Cambridge as as a very academic education institution. But from what I've learned about the Institute, you do work both from an academic sense, but also in terms of client engagements. How practical is the Institute's work? Incredibly practical. So as I said, our work is really about building capability and solutions. So we start with what's the challenge that organisations and individuals are sitting with? What are the the barriers to to their progress to contribute to a sustainable economy? And we work back from there. So it's very focused on what are the challenges? What are the opportunities? What are the impacts that they're having? Maybe negative impacts they want to remove or positive impacts that they aspire to have. And where do we, what do they need to be able to move forward? Sometimes they need new evidence. Sometimes they need new capabilities. Uh, sometimes they need to pilot things or work with others or have an enabling policy framework. So all of our work is um, focused on supporting them to have the impact that we want to help them to have. So I'm guessing that having you know, worked for 20 years or more in this field of business and sustainability, that the current chapter we're in is a, is a fascinating one for you personally. What have been your personal reflections on um, where we are right now and, and what it means for the agenda that you work in? Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating time at the moment, as we're all recognising that um, we can't think of business as usual or, or think about anymore going back to the way things were. So uh, we are organisationally reflecting on what does this mean kind of at a macro level at, at how economies work and the role of business in society and what, what society expects of business, uh, changes in the way that we live and work. What does that mean for products and services that businesses offer and the way that they operate? And what does it mean for 
leadership? What what kind of leadership do we need? So we're asking ourselves and working with our network and clients to really reflect on, on those and recognizing there'll be fundamental changes to the way that people engage and learn in the future. I think that's a really, really exciting um, analysis of the situation because, you know, my sense of, of, of talking to leaders is that there is a real openness to how we do things in the future. And that, that whole um, conversation about the relationship between business, government and society and ultimately what the role of business is, uh, is a very live one. And I think we have a unique opportunity to revisit that in a very, not just in a very positive way, but all, but also on a mass scale, which we haven't seen before. Yeah, it's also, I think, um interesting to recognize that just some of the the barriers that used to exist the kinds of things that our clients would sit with and say you know our our investors would never accept that or the regulators wouldn't let us do it some of those barriers have now gone so new things are, are possible new things have already happened incredibly quickly the flip side of course is the economic downturn and will there be budgets there might be a willingness but will there be in a fight for survival or with constrained budgets will those businesses be able to move forward and I think so so many businesses make assumptions about what they they can and can't do and and what the current period has done is is start to unpick some of those assumptions and and people are engaging with with what's possible rather than than what's what's happened before or what's comfortable yeah that but we are also seeing a slightly polarized response. We're seeing some organizations uh, or some it's it's really you know individuals within the same organization saying now is absolutely the time to think about you know is, our, is the business model broken? Do we need to be thinking about climate change, be thinking about contribution to inequality? And others say, no, it's completely the wrong time. Why would we distract ourselves now by thinking about those wider long-term challenges? So we're seeing quite different responses there, but at least it's the conversation that's being had. And the interesting thing is that the conversation within the boardroom about about what, what leaders need to focus on and what the priorities are sits in the context of I guess widespread media speculation about the role of leadership and and really what we can expect from leaders. I'd be interested in your reflections on that debate about what we can expect from leaders and who's doing the walk of shame and who isn't. Yes, it's fascinating. Um, At the moment, we're, I think, in the space of asking lots of questions ourselves and observing lots of things, but haven't yet seen a, I suppose, a definitive trend in the current context. We're seeing you know, lots of possibly weak signals of more people thinking perhaps, you know, a long term, more sustainable approach might be a thing that we need to focus on coming out of this. Um, but I think some of the old or the traditional challenges that we saw prior to this current period of disruption will still sit there. I think that some of the the challenges, the resistance that we saw will still hold in future. There is still you know, some resistance that comes from people seeing some of the uh, sustainability focus risks or opportunities that we focus on at Cambridge, seeing them as you know, slightly communist. It's all eco-warriors. It's not, it's not core business. You know, this is not business's problem to worry about. It's a government thing. You know, our job as business leaders is to be compliant. So we still see some of that. And some of that is due to, I think, just lack of understanding of the strategic implications and the vested interest that businesses have in getting climate resilient societies. So we still will see some of that. And we still have gaps in, um, you know, what does good look like? We don't have the science or the sorry, the data, the metrics. We don't have consistent methodologies for businesses to be able to apply. And it's, it's complex. You know, there are unintended consequences. It's interesting. I'd love to come back to that idea of the role of the role of data in decision making, because I think what a number of organisations struggle with is that they, they operate using data to make decisions about what's commercial or not commercial in the broadest sense and actually trying to interpolate the objective, subjective and data driven sources that you have in the sustainability agenda makes that very difficult. 
It really does. And climate's probably the easiest area. Um, you know, you can measure carbon, but you know, understanding what are the boundaries of responsibility there. You can measure your own direct operations and what you purchase, but how do you consistently measure and report that down your supply chain or how your customers are are using um, your products? So having consistent standards and approaches, we're moving towards that um, in relation to, to climate change and carbon. But how do you measure fairness? That's a much harder one because that's subjective. And then um, the wider environmental challenges, soil quality, water, we're moving towards developing metrics, but they're often really context specific. In some places, there's a complete abundance of water and others not enough. So it's not enough just to have a quantity. You need to, to have you know systems and metrics that reflect context. So it's, it is really complicated and it's really hard for decision makers to be able to make decisions when they don't have the kinds of data and systems that they're used to having to inform decisions. That that idea of context uh, being being so relevant really appeals to me because I think one of the one of the challenges we we see in in, in the businesses and organisations we work with is a sort of paralysis because of a, a fear of being called out as being a hypocrite for not doing something that or, or doing something that may not be you know fall within the the general view of what's right or wrong or good or bad and it's really difficult to to apply that concept of right wrong good bad to to these contextual situations and and actually what we're finding is that if an organization is uncomfortable with something that it's doing or an individual is uncomfortable with something they're doing the starting point really is to understand why they feel uncomfortable ra- rather than identify the goal to change it yeah and i think it's also um needing to be somewhat comfortable with ambiguity in a changing context often there are there is no definitive good and definitive bad but it's trying to make the best decision that's well informed and for some things like fairness um, there is no definitive fair or unfair it will all be influenced by individuals personal perspectives worldviews sometimes politics you know economic context but I think what we do is to encourage organizations, individuals to think it through, to test that from a range of dimensions. Would you still think that was fair if you were the recipient of, of the cost, you know, the cost, the downsides of that decisions? Would it, is this going to stand the test of time? So to test a range of dimensions and say, are we comfortable that it's the best decision we can make that's fairest, you know, in the, when you look at the wider set of, of things rather than simply saying it feels fair to me as well. So I think it's both that, as you say, you know, if you feel uncomfortable exploring that, but also getting diversity of perspective, recognising what's fair to me might not feel fair to you. So how would you surface that before you go ahead and commit to the decision? No, definitely. Uh, one, one of the things that struck me, we, we did an interview earlier in the series with um, Pete Statham, who's the UK head of sustainability for Carlsberg. And we had a fascinating conversation about the the breadth of the sustainability agenda and, and Carlsberg focus on some things that are related to the, to the environment, but go right through to to health and safety on the sustainability agenda. When you started working in this space, did did you have a, a clear sense of what sustainability meant to you, and and has that changed? And also, just interested in your insights on on what people coming onto your programs think sustainability means. I kind of, I suppose, moved sideways into this. So I didn't start with a a very clear personal purpose around what sustainability meant and and seek a role in that. I engaged because I uh, was working with Cambridge and saw the science, uh, saw the science of climate change, saw the science of of the environmental degradation. And I suppose at a a rational level, just recognised that was fundamentally unsustainable in the long term. So it's more an an intellectual look, the science doesn't stack up, we're not going to be able to sustain this. 
rather than it coming from a place of personal passion. But that has really uh, grown over the years. And as the uh, over the last 20 years, the science and evidence base around quite how unequal our societies are and increasingly so, and the negative impacts of those for individuals within those societies has um, become, you know, more clear. We've had more, we kind of know instinctively, it's not, it's not good for societies to be deeply unequal, but we've got more evidence of that. So that's been my personal journey that's really been evidence-based. But the trends that we've seen in how businesses and organizations have responded have also mirrored that. When I started out 20 years ago, the challenge was to persuade business that this was a problem and that it was their problem and they had a responsibility to engage. Um, and at that point, it was very focused on environmental challenges. Climate change over the last couple of decades has absolutely risen up the agenda to become the number one most urgent, most significant priority internationally. But over recent years, uh, inequality has, has you know, really dominated because of that challenge to social license. And because actually many individuals care most passionately about other humans, they care about other people. So their concern about how the system isn't working for other people is a real driver for many. So that's the, those are the biggest trends. That focus on climate change is just you know a top priority for many organisations. And alongside that, a desire to do something to address inequality. That idea of inequality is a really interesting one because I think it's a theme that can, it's a thread that can run through every aspect of, of any item really that anyone could put on the sustainability agenda. And I think really plays to where I feel we are as a society at the moment, which is a much more, a much greater sense of empathy um, and, and humanity, I guess, driven, you know, we're sitting here in, in the middle of the, the pandemic crisis, we're, we're working from home, we're, we're much more empathetic and sensitive to the, the needs of others, but, but also the opportunities and the support frameworks that people have, and the inequality in the relationships and experiences that we have of the world. Yeah, it's been really interesting seeing that called out in the media as well. I know that and I've been seeing the, you know, what are we expecting from our politicians that express now requirement for our politicians to express empathy, the kind of ranking of world leaders. I think one of the, the US media outlets counting the number of times that Trump has shown any sympathy for victims. You know, there's a real, are our leaders showing empathy? They're absolutely in the hot seat there. I think lead, lead, government leadership is an interesting one because the, the thing that has for a long time been this sense that you can deal with these problems through through legislation and regulation and control, um, you know, and it's it's hard for me to say this as a as a trained lawyer, but I think you know those those regulations and controls set up opportunities for people to go around them rather than embrace the spirit of them. And, and I think you know what we're seeing the shift I'm seeing in in the business world is a is a genuine sense of connection and, and a genuine sense of priority. Um, about the sorts of issues we're talking about and and businesses you know particularly multinational businesses opening their eyes and, and looking for those to your point inequalities even in, within their own workforces their own distributed production systems It'd be fascinating to see I, I guess you know come back to that, that idea of the relationship between business society and government It'd be fascinating to see where the balance of power lies in the years ahead you know back to that issue of can individuals, can individual organisations make a difference? You know, one of the, I think one of the fascinating experiences that we've had of, of recent months is is really just recognition that actually, when when lots of people, lots of individuals, lots of individual companies do something, it can have a it can have a massive impact. So I, I wonder whether that scepticism will ease on the on the back of the experiences that we're having at the moment. 
I think it will. I think that one of the um, biggest, well, individuals have, have different motivators. Some are absolutely driven by, look, the science is clear, the evidence is clear, we have to take action. But we also know that um, evidence alone is not sufficient. You know, people know smoking is bad for you, but lots of people still smoke. Peer pressure, it being, you know, just what's normal and expected can also make a big difference. So um, our flagship program that we have been running for many years, the Prince of Wales Business and Sustainability Program. One of the most powerful things about that program is that it brings senior executives from a whole range of different sectors and geographies together. And it's incredibly encouraging to them to see they're not an outlier. This is actually what senior peers are saying and thinking about and taking it seriously. You know, they're not a tree hugger for being in this conversation. They're just, you know, it's a it's a real and serious business challenge and opportunity that their senior peers are paying serious attention to. So it's normalizing it and and it not being seen as a niche side of desk issue. I think one of the other interesting uh, reflections on this period has just been the scale of the problem. I saw a fantastic um, statistic, which may or may not be true, uh, over the weekend, which was that the projection was that there would be a 5.5% reduction uh, in carbon production during the course of this this calendar year and I thought well that's that's fantastic that's that's great progress but then I also thought there's 3.5 billion people sat at home changing their behaviors and 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 when half well quarter of the world is is doing that and it's still only a 5.5 percent reduction that really does put the scale of the challenge into perspective for me yeah absolutely so it is uh I suppose it's a silver lining of a horrible situation that we do have a bit of a, a pause that gives us a tiny bit more breathing room to put the long-term solutions in place. But there are going to be, yes, huge challenges still for the future, transitioning our um, our energy systems. And obviously, we've got all the dynamics and the economy around oil pricing and you know changing price of renewables um, out there that will affect that. But I think how we, the transformations in how we live and work, how we travel, you know, we needed mass transit to be part of the solution somehow. We need to find ways to decarbonize how we move people and goods around. You know, when we're looking at the challenges in social distancing on the rail system, how's that going to you know play out? Will we see a trend towards more private vehicles? And how will we consume? I think that's the really big one. You know, is this just a bit of a pause? We're all at home, but we've got latent demand and everyone's going to want to get back to you know mass consumption. Or will we actually have developed different habits where we've recognised that we don't need to consume in the way that we did before? I think that's been the really, we can try and design out carbon from the way we produce things, but the the totality of what we want to consume also has to be tackled. So it's hard to know. I think after many um, recessions in the past, we've gone back to a boom period afterwards when people have rushed out and we have seen a growth in consumption. It'll be really interesting to see whether this has changed what we value in the future. So my money's definitely on there. There has been a change, but uh, we'll see. We've been doing some work in the uh, agri-tech and food space uh, in recent weeks, and it's, it's been fascinating that the the data and the analysis coming out from that sector suggests that whilst there have been short-term changes, there's definitely uncertainty about whether there will be long-term returns to, to more um, you know, local sustainable sources of, of food uh, and whether actually in that, in that particular market, price will always price and ease will always dictate consumer choices. There's a whole load of behavioural science, I think, that needs to be applied in so many different industries to, to capture the, uh, some, of the, some of the positive changes that have happened in recent months. 
Yeah, and the economics of the of some of the the kind of new ways of of and more sustainable ways. Will there be, you know, will those those businesses, those innovations, be able to thrive, or will the economic challenges actually, you know, stifle a lot of brilliant ideas and solutions? So, how do we make sure we do invest and support them to grow rather than just going to the kind of the cheapest, but potentially also the dirtiest ways of doing things? So, yeah, there's some really exciting developments and some fantastic shifts in, in I suppose the signals in what it is that society really values and is enjoying now but we need to make sure and not be naive you know that we will need to be proactive deliberate strategic about those innovations that we try to foster and scale up right and, that, and that's the exciting thing about the period we're in now because there's, there's this sense that the status quo is unlocked and we can make a whole lot of progress before the status quo relocks in some other other version and and um you know, I think we all acknowledge we're not not returning to business as usual. Um, how how much of the the work of the institute is about giving businesses the the tools to do things for themselves when they're away from the the classroom, for want of a better phrase? And how much of it is actually about education? Um, well, I suppose I would say education is also about giving the tools, giving you the thinking tools, it's giving you the knowledge base, it's giving you the mindset of going out and you know seeking what you need but might not have at the moment. So. Um, we do a lot that is around building the capability to be able to make better decisions, we think. We also use, a lot of our clients use education to support them to develop practical solutions. So one bank we work with actually uses the education programme as a catalyst for innovation, to bring together senior leaders across the bank to be able to say, actually, what is our joined up solution to having a sustainable built environment when we're you know, providing mortgages or investing in in this with you know with with a banker of big commercial develop, uh, property developers. Well, how do we join the dots there and really make a, a strength of that? So our education is very supportive of those um, practical outcomes, but we also do a lot of work in our in our centres. We have a centre for business transformation, centre for policy and industrial transformation, focus on sustainable finance. A lot of that work is about solutions development usually working with leading businesses that recognize that uh, they could do this on their own, but they would be a lot faster and more effective if they work with leading academics that might have great evidence base, if they work with their peers, if they can get some academic rigor around some of their their pilots, then they can really learn lessons in a a more systematic way that will enable, um, set them up for more effective scaling of that. So a lot of our work is in the developing tools, developing the evidence base, supporting pilots, enabling the broader communication of some of those valuable lessons. Just picking up on the on the idea there of the, the value of peers, it's, it's interesting. So the Zebra Project is all about community. It's about giving people who are facing common issues and problems the opportunity to interact with each other and, and, and learn from each other in a, in a flexible way. And presumably the, the, um, the Institute's alumni the, the 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 peer group that's formed during during programs um even when those people are working together or, or not is, is a really valuable part of the experience absolutely yes so our um and often the, the cohort that has, has studied together sometimes in our master's programs may have been together for two years sometimes on a kind of executive program it might only have been three days but they tend to be incredibly bonded you know, the level of trust that's been built when they're being, you know, really open about the challenges and their aspirations. So yes, that that peer network, it, it often is tough, it's challenging and it's complex. So sometimes it's having a peer group to be a sounding board for something new. You're having to step into the unknown, 
or it's crowdsourcing. Look, who's done this before? Let's not reinvent the wheel if somebody's tried this. How can we learn lessons from others if they're willing to be frank, not just about the good news story on the website, but what were the pain points? What did they learn? What wouldn't they try again so that we can avoid making them the mistakes they made? So incredibly valuable from that perspective. But I think just keeping each other, you know, engaged, it can be really tough. You know, it's it can be really hard when you're not making the progress at the speed you hope to. So just having a peer group that helps you get back into the fray and not feel completely demoralized or as though kind of you're the lone voice in the wilderness. I think it's really valuable from that perspective. And one of the things that we hear is 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 that it's 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 very difficult for people to maintain that motivation um and, and commitment during tough times o- often because there is a lack of data about the issue they're addressing or, or the impact of the way they're addressing it and we, we talked a little bit earlier about data but I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on the, the challenge really that people facing sustainability decision making for want of a better phrase face not having access to data which which validates what they're doing or, or how they're doing yeah it is tough as we said it's kind of easier in some areas it is getting better I, there's a huge amount of activity here I think one of the challenges at this stage is less the the availability of any data, but more the consistency of which data is being used by whom, what metrics. So, you know, in the groups of investors, groups of investors we work with who set metrics for the kind of impact they want to see and how they'll measure it and the proxies that they will use in the short term from publicly available data and the direction of travel, the kind of data they want to see from companies. But that's just that's just it's a leading group of investors, but it's just one group. On the other hand, there are groups of businesses coming together and saying, look, we as leading businesses think this is the most valuable data that you should be looking at. So it's a lack of standardization that also makes it hard. And I think that's where it comes back to to needing purpose. If you, you can't always have all of the data to know all of the results, but you can be really clear about your intent um, and hold yourself accountable for trying to get evidence and to assess your impact and be willing to go back if actually the results aren't quite what you hope for. But although you um, might not always have the data or the results, you do have clarity of purpose and intention, which can be really helpful when it's, you know, uncertain and it feels like you're not making progress. At least you know what you stand for, even if you don't yet know whether you're getting there. And you, you talked earlier about the, um, the, the the importance of the progression of the sustainability agenda in talent retention and, and talent management. And, and I think one of the things that we've seen is that the importance of however however good or, or, or poor the data is, the importance of communicating what you, what you have got and what you are and um, what you are doing. And I think that's particularly important because. The stakeholders, and, and, and I'm conscious that stakeholders is increasingly not just about shareholders. The stakeholders in an organization are, are, are asking for ambitious action. They're asking for significant progress and, and the communication and data that needs to underpin a sense that, that that ambitious action is being taken is critical. It is. But I think that one positive thing that was a trend that we're seeing is businesses being willing to set an ambition, a clear ambition, and an an ambition that should be measurable before they know how they're going to get there. So a while ago, we saw a number of, there were some businesses that had absolutely, you know, set out their stall very ambitiously, but many organizations were a bit more cautious. They didn't want to say they would do something until they knew how they would do it and knew how they would evidence it and got everything in place. And perhaps even they had some good news stories or they were further ahead than they were disclosing. So it was going to be relatively easy to achieve. 
that's I mean, it's not it's, that has not been good enough. It's not been aligned with the science. It's been about being incrementally less bad. I think a really positive trend that we're seeing is companies saying we are absolutely going to set targets that are in line with the science, even though we don't yet know how we're going to get there. And having said we're going to do it, we're now going to have to work that out and we're going to have to align the business around working it out rather than just saying, don't worry, there's a team of specialists in the corner and they've got it sorted. So I think that's a really positive trend. And I think also being open to um, listening and understanding and being open to feedback and challenge. So not not trying to message this, not just being all over the good news stories, but acknowledging when they've got a challenge and being open about the fact that they're going to have to fix it. So I think that transparency, you know, accountability to society and the setting the targets in line with what's needed, not just what they know they can get a good communication story around in the short term because they've already kind of got it sorted behind the scenes. I think that that idea of, of broad engagement is is really, really important to everybody feeling that they have both a role to, to play in, in making change, but also in, in benefiting, benefiting from change. And, and for me, that goes to the, the general sense that this is no longer a niche agenda. It's not a, it's not an agenda for enthusiasts. It's mainstream. Uh, and everyone in business has an opportunity to, to play in that mainstream. Yeah. And I think more than just an opportunity is actually necessary so I think um, oh, a decade ago, I had clients that basically wanted us to get senior colleagues to be appreciative of what the sustainability team was doing, but not to get involved. They just wanted appreciation, you know, with the experts, leaders to it. That only ever leads to some siloed, often, you know, things we think of as philanthropy or, or historic CSR. That's not aligning the strategy of the business with delivering this. And I think um, more recently, we've had organizations that took a really good strategic top-down approach, were very clear about where they wanted to go, but then realized it got stuck because they were not, um, their middle management, their younger talent coming up, were not being incentivized, they were not being developed, they were not being given permission to be able to innovate, to be able to contribute. So I think our clients have also recognized that, yes, you need to set the ambition and the purpose top down, but then you need to enable people to contribute. You won't have a monopoly on all the good ideas. You need it to be really embedded across the organization. So you need to be fostering that that bottom up innovation and alignment as well. Yeah, it's about having a culture, but also the operational processes and, and HR and business processes that Absolutely. support that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in you, you get you get what you measure and you get what you reward. So yes, there's a cultural piece that people can can bring their own values and purpose to the business but equally there's a hard economic need to measure and 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 value and reward the right things so when we're thinking about the the challenge that boards have in balancing the challenges around sustainability with the other issues that businesses are facing and now is a particularly acute acute set of issues that businesses are facing what advice would you give to board members about how they actually address and prioritize those challenges So I think that would really be an extension of what we were discussing earlier. It would be by doing the things that I was highlighting that they're not currently doing perhaps enough of. So it would be educating themselves, making sure that either they individually or, uh, you know, the board as a whole are, are educated or equipped. They would know what good looks like. They would know how to review, uh, how to challenge the executive. So it's taking time to understand the context so that they can bring an informed perspective to reviewing a strategy or a recommendation that's being brought forward. But that's also about taking time. It's taking the time, often taking the time together 
to build alignment about what is the vision? How does this relate to the long-term strategy, the purpose of the organization? Is the board actually aligned around this? So I think that really takes um, a commitment to carve out time together. It's also as part of that setting a clear ambition, setting a clear direction of, of travel for the organization, even if, as I said, you don't quite know how you're going to deliver it, at least sending a signal down the business about what's the ambition of the board on this. And then it's about making sure if, if the organization is going to follow through, creating a context for innovation across the business, giving permission to people to innovate, to deliver against that. It's about engaging and embedding. We were talking about some of the, the kind of hardwiring systems in the business and how people are incentivized, making sure that it's being tracked through. Someone's accountable. People in the business can deliver against this. But really importantly, for a lot of the organizations we work with, the barriers aren't, there are some internal barriers. There are a lot of external barriers. There are, you know, it's just not economic or there are policy barriers or they're going to have to work with peers. But how do they do that and, and not get into issues of you know competition law? How do you influence others around you to enable the whole system to be incentivizing this rather than um, being a barrier to it? So there's a lot of work required to engage external stakeholders take your investors with you on the journey take your customers with you on the journey but yeah make sure you walk the talk as well make sure you're going beyond just setting the formal strategy ambition making sure that people believe that you personally are committed to this through the signals you're sending around your behaviors and leadership actions i'm wondering you know what really what you see as the the trends in in organizations and, and how they're approaching leadership development Yes, we're seeing some really interesting trends in this space and increasingly. So to back up, a lot of our work used to be working um, at very senior levels within businesses where they wanted a strategic intervention. They hadn't got their heads around sustainability. They recognized they needed to. They might work with us. Increasingly, we are being brought in to help them to embed this in just the way their leaders are developed. So it's becoming more mainstream within organizations. And one of the reasons for that is they recognize that what they need are not just people who can manage effectively or more efficiently within the current paradigm. They know they're going to need to change. You know, there are challenges to their fundamental business model, the way they operate. So they need people who can lead transformational change. And that needs a whole different set of, of capabilities, mindsets. So they're looking to us and to others to help them develop people who can be effective at influencing change for positively shaping the system, not just adapting to what's happening, but being proactive in, in shaping the system in which they operate. We're also seeing uh, a trend towards not just wanting to develop capability, but I think I gave an earlier example of a client wanting to use an education and leadership development process to actually deliver business relevant results to actually use it as an innovation catalyst to bring people together, not just to have more capable people, but to come out with some propositions, client strategies, new products that can be taken to the executive to review and potentially, uh, hopefully, for investment. So these are skills that can be learned and deployed in the sustainability environment, very much skills that are generally valuable to businesses. So it's a, it's a forum within which to develop those skills. Absolutely. Yes. So although the kinds of challenges and changes that our clients are working with might have the label of sustainability, for them, it's just being fit for the future. It's all just good business. And these are just the kinds of capabilities they need. And we're really comfortable because we agree. We think this is just about good business. It's paying attention to its wider operating context. 
So when, when an organization or an individual's made that choice, made made the decision to make an investment in, in joining one of the executive programs, what's the best thing that they could say at the end of it? What would make you think you, your, your job had been done? Oh, my goodness. So I think it is, um, and I'm fortunate because oh, I would say this, but it, but it's true. Um, so often at the programs, it's partly what makes the, the, you know, the job so enjoyable. It's the, the impact um, that we have through people's commitment afterwards. Sometimes it's a mindset shift. You know, people, uh, particularly on a custom program, when they might have been a reluctant, you know, sent on a program by their, uh, but actually they come out of it actually with a transformed mindset, with an absolute commitment to it's not to do one thing differently. It's changed the way that they think and the way they see the business. And they leave with, an, with a commitment and a passion and excitement. Now they can see how they can bring together what they care about personally with their jobs. So that finding alignment and the unlock and the energy and excitement that we see from that is incredibly motivating. But sometimes it's people who already arrived with that. And what they want to know is how do I go further, faster? How can I bring others? And leaving with a yeah, I wanted that, but I got so much more than I expected is another great outcome. The kind of the learning that you that you didn't know that you would value, but you get as a result. So that's also a, a, a great outcome from our perspective. But yeah, we have a network now of 9,000, I think. Uh, it's growing so rapidly because of our online programs of really motivated, enthusiastic members of the network who are incredibly influential. And we've just launched our Future We Want network engagement campaign because we want to learn from and engage with those alumni. That's how we can really have impact through working with and, and tapping into that energy and enthusiasm. Well, whether it's in sustainability or any other um, aspect of business or business theme, if there was ever a time for passion and role modelling and the willingness to share with others, it's it's very much now. And uh, I think any any executive programme that can encourage that passion and the sharing is absolutely invaluable um, to the business world. Absolutely. Yes, I completely agree. If we think back, you know, even just two or three months, governments, politics, um, definitely in the UK, definitely in the US, but perhaps more broadly, were we're having a rough time in terms of their their credibility. And I think the relationship between government and society and, and government and business was strained in different places. But we've you know, we're now in a period in the middle of the global response to the pandemic where you know largely society has responded to government wish um and you know business has taken a significant amount of pain in achieving that. Do do you think that you know, in the future the role of the role of government and its relationship with society and business will will change at all? It's interesting. I think it is, I suppose, somewhat reassuring um, that we clearly do in times of crisis. We do, it is government we look to. So we had seen a trend of the growth of, I suppose, of corporate nations where, you know, there are a huge number of multinational organisations that have, you know, huge asset bases and huge customer reach and are therefore potentially more powerful and influential than many nation states. So we had seen this shift of power. But it's been really interesting that in a a point of global crisis, we have trusted governments. You know, we can look at all the Edelman surveys and and see all of the surveying of trusting government. But at a point of crisis, that's clearly who we look to. And we do put our faith and and confidence there. And we do all um, toe the line. So we have organisationally long encourage business to to orient their efforts to try to get policy frameworks in place because we have believed that actually we need governments to be setting the bar to be saying look what is in society's best interests we can't leave it to the markets to work that out the government needs to set the rules of the game 
So I suppose it's somewhat encouraging that actually we will trust government sufficiently to protect our interests and that businesses will also do that. I think it will be, um, there'll be some important points that we will have to grapple with. Um, governments will probably have to make some tough choices about what sectors should be shored up, which sectors are in society's interests and which perhaps maybe do need to be left in the past. And I think that won't be easy and there will be some really tough debates and intense lobbying there. But we need to rely on government to be doing that long term thinking now as we rebuild societies and economies about which parts of the economy are worth preserving and which should we let go of. So I think it may be a bit bumpy, but I um, have some optimism that we have sufficient trust in government at the moment and have to hope that government leaders are, are reflecting on the kind of leadership that is going to be needed because it's really, really tough to be making those those leadership decisions in full public scrutiny with a debate about your leadership style relative to that of your peers going on in parallel with you trying to lead. So, yes, it's a, it is a tough time and I think we will see some tensions, but hopefully we will trust our governments to make good decisions and hopefully they will do so. So whether we're talking about sustainability leadership, leading in government or, or leading organisations, we we are in a, a time when approaches to leadership are, are back in vogue. That's definitely the area uh, for us to be thinking about, you know, where we can improve our skills personally and where we can encourage the right leadership development skills within our organisations. Lindsay, thank you so much for the conversation today. It's been fascinating learning about your own perspective and experiences, but also learning about the, the Cambridge approach to sustainability leadership. And I'd certainly implore anyone who's uh, who's listening to us today to, um, to have a look at the programmes that the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership offers. I have a hunch that we're in a moment in history where sustainability is going to become a much more mainstream concept and um, beyond environmentalism. And actually, this could be a, a, the dawn of a very interesting time and a, and a time when sustainability is, as we hope, on the on the board agenda of all good businesses that are looking to the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.